the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And husbands and wives have to do that because they get sinned against a lot. And so they need to understand what to do. See, this is really an important question that Peter asked Jesus because, like Peter, as I said, we all need to know how to treat people, especially our spouse, who are repeat offenders against us. How many times have we sinned against God? More than we could count, right? And how severe were those sins? Well, they were infinite because his standards are that high. So how many times should one sinner forgive another sinner, especially if they're married to each other? Hi, welcome to Verse by Verse with Pastor Steve Kreloff, the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. We're studying the biblical marriage. So far, we've explored what Paul wrote to the Ephesians about the spirit-filled marriage. Then we saw in Genesis chapter 2 how God had originally intended marriage to work, followed by what happened to our relationships as a result of Adam's and Eve's sin in the garden. That was chapter 3. Today we'll begin to examine a well-known passage about forgiveness that we don't always apply to our marriages the way we should. Here's Pastor Steve now to begin our lesson. In his book entitled, When Sinners Say I Do, author Dave Harvey tells the story of a young married couple named Jeremy and Cindy, who sad to say some can relate to. Here's what Dave Harvey says. You probably know Jeremy and Cindy. You've seen them around, or at least someone like them. They're the couple who have it all together, sharp, attractive, gifted, great role models in the church. But sometimes... Having it all together on the outside simply masked the chaos within, and this marriage was certainly in chaos. As ambitious type A personalities, both of them were getting a lot done in life. They fell in love and seemed destined to be together. After the gorgeous wedding, they settled into an upper middle class life, but it didn't take long to realize that this was not what either had envisioned. A two-career couple, they assumed they would navigate through this marriage thing as a team. Instead, a subtle competition developed between them. Pride and selfishness increasingly drove their personal lives. As their personal ambitions pulled in different directions, gaps quickly opened in their weak foundation of their marriage. In all the busyness of life, neither one could see the gaps growing. Jeremy began to wander, first with his thoughts, then increasingly and more boldly with his actions, until he had given himself fully to an adulterous relationship. Now, whether or not you have ever personally fallen into the sin of adultery or had your spouse sin against you by committing adultery, we all know what it's like to be sinned against by our spouse. See, every husband and wife knows the pain of being hurt and deeply wounded by the one who on your wedding day promised to unconditionally love and cherish you. That's not always the case, though. Angry words, emotional and sometimes physical abuse, deception, insensitivity, rudeness, indifference, neglect, impatience, and being overly 
controlling are just some of the many ways that you've been sinned against by your husband or wife. And you find yourself angry, resentful, even bitter, to the point where your marriage is on the verge of destruction. So what are you supposed to do about this? Well, that's what we're going to find out this morning. We're going to find out this morning because we've been studying about issues relating to marriage for the last few months, as you know, we've been engaged here at Lakeside in a study on what the Bible says about marriage, and in recent weeks, our focus has been on Genesis chapter 3 and the effects of the fall of man on our marriages. And what we've discovered from these studies is that when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, they not only became sinners, but they guaranteed that all of us, their descendants, their, their sons and daughters would be sinners too. And one of the areas where sin is most prevalent and most pronounced is in our relationship with our spouse. This was certainly the case, as we've discovered, with Adam and Eve. As soon as they committed sin, they began to cover up not only their bodies, but also their souls from each other. Instead of being the closest of companions, best friends, in a relationship held together by love and trust and and honest transparency, they began to selfishly withdraw from one another by hiding their innermost feelings, their, their deepest thoughts from one another. And so instead of recognizing their own sin and taking responsibility for their own disobedience so that they could repent, they excused their sin by blaming someone else. Adam blamed God for giving him Eve because she was the one, after all, who handed him the forbidden fruit and he ate. And Eve blamed the serpent because, after all, the serpent was the one who deceived her into sinning. And so these are just some of the, note this, natural effects and consequences of the fall that impact us as husbands and wives. Being sinners, we become self-absorbed people. We withdraw from our spouse into our own little world, and we tend to blame others for their encouragement At our sin, we blame others for our sinful behavior rather than taking responsibility and repenting for where we're wrong. Now note this, in addition to these natural consequences and effects of being a sinner, the fall also brought with it some specific judgments that God imposed on husbands and wives. In Genesis 3 verse 16, we read this, the end of verse 16, God speaking to Eve, he says this, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now we went over this last time because Eve sinned by leading her husband into sin. She and all her female descendants were sentenced to have this innate sinful desire to lead, to control, to dominate their husbands. Likewise, Adam and all of his male descendants were sentenced to having a corresponding innate sinful desire to oppose their wives' attempts to control them by crushing them with a dictatorial, lorded over them type of resistance. And so from this point on, folks, husbands and wives were thrust into a constant striving as they battled now for supremacy within their marriage relationship, who was going to be in control. And on top of all of that, Genesis 3, verses 17 through 19 go on to say that God, in cursing the soil, now made work difficult for Adam and all men. 
He has sentenced them to hard labor, to work so hard just to produce some food from a cursed soil that their labor now would cause them to be exhausted. And one of the implications then of this curse is that men would now be so busy working just to eke out a living that they would have little time for their wives. In other words, men would would now tend to struggle with being workaholics who neglect their wives because their jobs are just so demanding. So what we have learned, what we have been learning then in the last few weeks about the fall of, of man and marriage is that with sin infiltrating the human race, it has profoundly impacted the relationship of a husband and a wife in a number of ways. We are naturally selfish now. We fail to openly and honestly communicate with each other. Instead, we hide and cover up our, our true inner feelings from our spouse. We are inclined now to justify our sin by blaming others for our misbehavior. And we are in a constant battle over which one is going to rule and gain the upper hand in the relationship. Now, folks, that's a lot of sin going on in a marriage. A lot of sin. And so it is inevitable that husbands and wives are going to hurt and wound one another. You cannot put two sinners together under the same roof and not expect that they're going to sin against each other. In fact, there is no pain that is as deep and as wounding as the pain caused by a spouse who sins against you. Therefore, one of the greatest needs in marriage is that every husband and wife needs to learn to regularly forgive each other. That is to say, being married to a sinner means that forgiving each other has to be a major component of your marriage. In fact, I'll go so far as to say that if you do not learn to forgive your spouse on an ongoing basis, your marriage is doomed to failure. No marriage can be successful, can be satisfying, can be Christ-honoring unless you learn to forgive your spouse. You see, it's not if they sin against you, it's when they sin against you because they will sin against you. And so this morning as we continue our study on marriage, I want us to give our attention to what the Bible says in general about forgiving those who sin against us, but then specifically applying it And thinking about it this way, to forgive our spouse when they sin against us. But more than simply understanding the the truths about forgiveness in, in general, I want us to go a little bit deeper and understand why God tells us we ought to forgive others. Why God says we should forgive others because unless you and I understand the reasons that you should forgive, you won't. We won't. One of the key passages of scripture that teaches us why we should forgive those who sin against us is Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. This is the passage I read to you earlier. Now, most of this passage, most of it consists of a parable given by Jesus as really an illustrative story about forgiving others. However, the parable begins by telling us the reason that Jesus even told this parable. It was because Peter had come up to him asking a question concerning how many times he should forgive those who sinned against him. Notice verse 21. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, How often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Now, why would Peter ask 
such a question. Where did this come out of? Was it just out of the blue? Where did he come up with this? Where did this come from? Well, notice how Matthew presents Peter's question. He tells us, then Peter came and said to him. See, the word then at the beginning of this statement indicates that Peter's question was connected to what Jesus had just taught his disciples. In other words, it flowed out of our Lord's teaching. So we have to then understand what was it that Jesus had just finished teaching his disciples about. Well, look at verses 15 through 17 of Matthew 18. Starting at verse 15, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, in these verses, Jesus has told his men how to deal with those believers, at least professing believers in the church, who sin and refuse to repent of their sin. The Lord gave several specific steps to take in addressing unrepentant sinning members of the church, with the last step being church discipline or excommunication. Put them out, he said. Now, watch this. It's right after this, right after spelling out what to do with a professing believer who sins and refuses to repent that Peter comes to Jesus and he asks him, he asks him this incredibly important and very relevant question. Peter wants to know what he should do with a fellow believer whom he calls my brother who sins against him repeatedly but who apparently repents each time he sins against him. You see, Peter knows, because Jesus has just taught on this, that when a man is confronted with his sin and he truly repents, he's to be forgiven and restored to fellowship. That's what Jesus said in the words, you've won your brother. You've won him back to your fellowship. You've been reconciled to him. And he also knows, Peter does, the steps to take leading up to church discipline if this man refuses to repent. But what Peter does not know is how often he should forgive someone who repeatedly sins against him, but who is not a candidate for church discipline. Why? Because this repeat offender keeps repenting of their sin. At least they say they are sorry and they keep repenting of their sin. In other words, Peter wants to know how many times he should forgive a fellow Christian who sins against him over and over and over again, but claims each time that he's sorry and he's repentant. Now, I I want you to realize that each of us is very much indebted to Peter for asking such a great question. Because Peter raised with the Lord a scenario that all of us really can relate to, especially in our marriages. In a marriage relationship, husbands and wives inevitably sin against each other many times, many, many times, and sometimes with the same type of sin over and over and over again. And every time they come back and say, I'm sorry, this won't happen again, please forgive me. So what Peter then is asking here concerning forgiveness, it's very relevant It's very right. It's a good question, especially for a husband and wife and this very issue of forgiving each other. 
Because as C.S. Lewis once said, forgiveness is a beautiful word until you have something to forgive. It's a beautiful concept until somebody sins against us and then we have to put it into practice. And husbands and wives have to do that because they get sinned against a lot. And so they need to understand what to do. See, this is really an important question that Peter asked Jesus because like Peter, as I said, we all need to know how to treat people, especially our spouse, who are repeat offenders against us. Now, once again, look at verse 21, please, and see what Peter is thinking in raising this question. Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Now, based on what we read here, we know that Peter understands that God expects him to forgive those who sin against him. But what he wants the Lord to tell him, I mean, he understands about forgiveness. He knows he needs to forgive. What he wants the Lord to tell him is how often? How often does he need to forgive someone who sins against him a multitude of times? In fact, he even throws out a number that he suggests to Jesus. He throws out the number seven. Is that good enough, Lord? Is seven enough? Now, why would Peter come up and where would he come up with this figure, seven? Well, according to the Jewish rabbis of his day, one was obligated to forgive someone who sinned against you three times, and that was it, three times. On the fourth offense, the rabbis taught no forgiveness was to be granted. Now, where did they come up with this? Well, they based this teaching on several statements found in the Old Testament book of Amos in which God said that he will punish Israel's enemies for three and then four transgressions. Now, the rabbis took these statements incorrectly, I might add, to be an inflexible law that God does not extend his mercy and forgiveness beyond three transgressions, and neither should we. So that's what Peter's thinking. Peter is very much aware of the rabbinical teaching of his day. And so what he does is he just doubles it and adds one with a cherry on top. What Peter's trying to do is impress Jesus with being so gracious. He knows that the rabbis of his day have said three, that's it. Peter says, Lord, I'll double it. I'll add one for good measure because I'm such a swell guy, such a gracious guy. And uh, how about that? Now, it's very easy for us to criticize Peter with being so unspiritual as to think that you could put a numerical limit of seven for forgiving others. But I want you to know, we ought not to be too hard on Peter because at least Peter was thinking in the right direction. At least Peter was willing to forgive seven times and and actually be very generous in the context of his culture. This is more than some of us are willing to do. Some people aren't even willing to forgive once. So we ought not to be too hard on Peter. We ought to give Peter some credit for his willingness to go beyond the boundaries of the rabbinical Judaism of his day and be generous with his forgiveness. But you see, what what Peter did not realize at this point, at least in his life, was that his understanding of being generous in showing mercy and forgiving others was far short of how merciful God expected him to be in extending mercy forgiveness to others, and far short of how merciful God expects us to be. And so in verse 22, Jesus answers Peter's question about forgiving repeat offenders by telling him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 
times seven. Now, this is one of those remarkable, astounding, astonishing statements made by Jesus that has the potential to radically transform your life, my life, our marriages. After hearing Peter suggest the number seven as the limit for forgiving others, Jesus very plainly tells him, no, not up to seven times, but up to 70 Seven times. Now, we need to understand our Lord is not playing numbers games here with with Peter. He's not telling him that the maximum number of times for extending forgiveness to a habitual offender is 490. And that the 491st time that this person sins against you, you say, that's it. No more forgiveness for you. That's not what our Lord is saying at all. The Lord isn't putting a numerical limit on forgiveness, he's not suggesting to us that we keep count of the number of times someone sins against us so that, uh, that when they reach a certain level, we're free to no longer forgive them. The Lord's point in expressing the number of times we should forgive as 70 times seven is to say that forgiveness has no limits, has no limits. We should never stop forgiving those who sin against us, regardless of how many times they sin against us, regardless of whether they're believers or not, and regardless of the enormity of their sin or the pain that their sin has caused. In fact, in Luke 17, which is a parallel passage of this, Jesus was even more emphatic about not setting a limit on the number of times we are to forgive those who sin against us. Listen to what he said in Luke chapter 17, verses three and four. He said, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times a day saying, I repent, forgive him. It's pretty clear. Jesus is teaching that if someone sins against you seven times a day and then seven times a day they come and they say, I'm so sorry, will you forgive me? I don't want to do this again. You are to forgive them. So Jesus very clearly responded to Peter's question about forgiving others by teaching us that we are always to be willing to forgive those who sin against us even if they continue committing the same sin day after day. Now that leads us to ask this question. Why? Why? Why should we forgive repeat offenders? Why should we forgive those who claim to be repentant, but who may very well be insincere in their repentance? Why shouldn't we put a limit on the number of times that we forgive others as the rabbis did? as Peter suggested. In fact, based on the culture of his day, as I said before, Peter was being rather generous in offering forgiveness to someone seven times. So why did Jesus reject Peter's generosity and tell him that forgiveness is something that you don't keep count of? Well, that's what we're going to find out this morning. Because in response to Peter's question about how often he should forgive a sinning brother, Jesus gave a parable on the subject of forgiveness. And the purpose of this parable is to explain, not simply about forgiveness in general, but rather it's about why we should keep forgiving those who sin against us without stopping, regardless of the number 
of their offenses and the enormity of their offenses. No one can possibly earn the right to be less forgiving than God. Who are we to say, God may forgive you, but I won't? But in the outrage-oriented, zero-tolerance world in which we live, that's become the norm. And the cause of untold misery in all of our relationships, even in marriage. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to Verse by Verse, featuring the expository, or one verse at a time, preaching of Pastor Steve Kreloff. He's the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. For more information about Lakeside, call the office at 727-441-1714 or go online to lakesidechapel.com. Verse by Verse is listener-supported, and we are deeply grateful for the generous listeners who help us finance these broadcasts. If you're interested in participating, it's easy to do at our website. Click on the giving link at versebyverseradio.org to learn more. And don't forget that we have all of our previous broadcasts available for free streaming or downloading on the Message Archive page. The web address, again, is versebyverseradio.org. I'm Jerry Peterson. What if God put the same limits on forgiveness that we are inclined to do? What if we said, please forgive me, and he did forgive us, but after, say, 490 times, he said, sorry, you've used up all your get-out-of-jail-free cards. Now I'm holding it against you. Well, we'd all be toast, wouldn't we? Next time on Verse by Verse, we'll study a parable that illustrates that idea. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.